Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. Morning, everyone. I know some of your faces, some of you I went around and just said hello too quickly, but uh, um, YCP, I, I don't know if all of you know, but obviously it was brought in during Bishop Lennon's time, all right? And then obviously we've had a whole slew of bishops since then. Um, and I really, I got ordained in 2014, and I was, uh, four years later, about 2018, I was named the chaplain for Culture Project when they came into this, about 2019 actually when they came in. So I've been working with a very... Uh, focused group of young adults as their chaplain, uh, new missionaries every year. But of course, you've bumped into them and everyone in her, you know, the young adult community is very small. It doesn't take long to meet everyone very quickly at a few events. So um, it's been a great joy to work with young adults. And I was uh, did several talks at Theology on Tap West, several talks at Theology on Tap East when it was at Nighttown, when there was Nighttown. So talking to young adults is a very familiar setting for me and one that I enjoy a lot. When Bishop Perez was here, he made a very clear um, accent mark on young adults. He said it was his favorite group, which most bishops, I think, are very nervous to say what their favorite is because it <laughs> alienates other ones. But he just very quickly said he just had a great love for young adults, and he wanted a lot of ministries for you because he thought it was such an important time of coming to personalize your faith. Meaning like, okay, I know what I was given. I know kind of what happened in college good or bad, all right? And then uh, I know where I'm at now. I'm in the, for you guys, I'm in like the professional world for this chapter of my life and trying to put it all together, making big decisions like vocation, big decisions like, okay, if this is going to be my job or this is the career I'm going to grow in, uh, what does my faith do with this? What does this all, how does this go together? Is faith a Sunday thing, an evening thing, like a hobby, like a volleyball tournament? Uh, or does it have something to do with the workplace? And that's really kind of what, Young Catholic Professional is all about is to help you to see that there is no compartmentalizing the incarnation. When God took on everything that was human, everything that was human became a part of the way he communicates, both to you and then through you. So uh, one of the great stories I love is by a hero of mine, Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete. He was a, a scientist before he became a priest, and he was a chain smoker, overweight, disheveled man. Uh, he did, he actually dressed up as a priest. He wasn't a priest in order to meet Pope Paul VI. And he got in line, met Pope Paul VI, and said, Holy Father, I have to confess, I, I'm not a priest. I just dressed up like this in order to meet you. And he goes, well, maybe you should be one. And then he became a priest, right? And brilliant guy, has a doctorate and all these things. And he became uh, one of John Paul II's good friends and advisors. But one of the things he does is he tells a great story about Cardinal Sean O'Malley, who's the Cardinal of Boston. And they were best friends. They used to go to musicals in New York together. They used to share books and articles and pray together and have dinners together and laugh. And he says, Cardinal O'Malley, he was with him one day, he said, and he was meeting with this poor uh, immigrant family. They had nothing. They were basically living on the streets of D.C. And he spoke to them in Spanish. And he was warm and gracious. And they got a tap on the shoulder. And they said, um, the senator's here to speak to you. And so he went to this other room and talked to the senator. And he said, nothing changed in this man. He was the exact same man. He goes, and later on that day, we were doing a holy hour together. Nothing changed in this man. And he said his reflections later on was, is because for Cardinal O'Malley, according to Monsignor Albacete, there is one reality, and it was Christ. 
And Christ is in all things and through all things. And so when he was with them, he was with the Christ in need. When he was with the senator, he was uh, with the Christ who had influence. When he was in prayer, he was with the humble Christ in the Eucharist. Like he just was with Jesus everywhere he was. So his dispositions never changed. That doesn't come through hard work, right? That comes through a lot of yielding and surrendering to the Holy Spirit, which is what we're here to talk about today. So what I want to do is just pray uh, for a little bit with you. I want to read a scripture passage twice. It's a small one. I'm going to read it once, kind of give you a moment to gather what you just heard, read it a second time, and pray, and then we'll head into the talk. All right? So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Second time. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus, we praise you and love you. Help us to enter into this power that you speak of. Help us to be aware of all the parts of our lives that may resist or be nervous by the notion of power. Help us to also welcome and listen to the parts of us that long for the power of the Father. Fill this room. You don't need more than two people to promise you're with us. There's definitely more than two here. Fill each one of us by name. Speak to us. Guide us and lead us. We ask this through your most holy name. Amen. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So today I want to really talk about this notion of power and the Holy Spirit. In my own life, what I noticed in the church has been like, there's some groups that hijack the Holy Spirit as if it's like theirs exclusively, right? And these are tend to be charismatic groups. And I have a love-discomfort relation with charismatic groups. My discomfort is always like, I don't are we really just doing this now? Like, do, do, do our hands have to go up like that? Do we have to... Do, do we have to have all these manifestations? I'm a little uncomfortable. My brother who doesn't believe in God, if he saw this, it'd be a total out. Like, how does this? But then there's another side of it where I have experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I have seen the movements. I've felt the fruit. I've seen miraculous things happen. And I'm like, I love this, Holy Spirit. I love the charismatic. And so it's like this back and forth with me, right? But the truth is, while they accent, I use the word hijack, but really while they accent the Holy Spirit, You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without being animated by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just imitating him as if we were going to imitate George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. He just becomes a good role model. It's only the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows him to be living and alive in and through you. Of course, it's only because of the Holy Spirit that he's alive in the sacraments. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead. And before he leaves, it becomes very clear that his main gift to humanity was going to be the Holy Spirit. That after his death and resurrection, freeing you and me from the power of sin, Satan, and everlasting death, 
He bestowed upon you and me, which you're going to hear in the readings for this weekend of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the gift really that he was longing to bestow on us. The word spirit can mean quite a few things, but one of the connotations is breath. So for someone to bestow their breath upon you, right, it's pretty one of two things, either very, very gross or very, very intimate. No other time do we want someone else's breath a part of our life, <laughs> either intimacy or gross. <laughs> right? And so those are the only two times breath comes into play with someone else. You might need resuscitated and you're grateful someone else's breath is going into your lungs. It's saving you and giving you life. Maybe an awesome hot date. Good for you. Right? <laughs> or, or it may be some old guy who had too much coffee and he's really a close talker. Either way, breath is always something, it's not benign. Let's put it that way. Someone else's breath is not benign. It's meant to have an effect on us, okay? So, in particular today, I want to focus in on the power that Jesus talks about. See, you and I, if we're going to be very honest about the notion of power, we're ambivalent. Meaning, not that we don't care, but ambivalence means we like power and we're scared by power. Power is both an attractive thing and an unnerving thing. Because there was times where you may have felt powerless over someone else's power. Maybe it was an alcoholic mom when you were growing up. There's nothing you could do. And the mood swings, the destructive behaviors, the embarrassment, you were powerless over that. And it, all you wanted was power. Maybe it was an abusive dad or an absent dad and you were powerless over getting his love and affection and attention. Or maybe, I don't know, as I, I'm, just, I'm 39 and I'm just starting to get more and more aware of that I'm not in my 20s when I talk to people in their early 20s uh, or mid-20s, whatever old you guys are. And, uh, but do you remember um, the, the Kool-Aid Man commercials? Okay, thank God. Because otherwise this talk, this talk I would've, we would have just stopped and just prayed a rosary. Okay, so... That probably would be better anyways. But nonetheless, so if you remember the Kool-Aid man commercials, he had a certain kind of power. He would just destroy your home, right? He would just barge in and say, oh, yeah. And that was it. Your house was destroyed and you got a drink of Kool-Aid out of the deal. But that's a sense of power, but it's destructive. It's chaotic. He could have rang the doorbell. He could have just left it on the street. We would have found it. He didn't have to destroy a home, right? How about right now? Vladimir Putin has a certain amount of power, right? These are very destructive, harmful ways of power. We may have all had a boss who misused his power over us in different ways. I remember when I was, my first job, I worked at the Hudson Farmer's Market. I stocked the shelves and uh, there was a man there. His name was Bela. He owned the place. He was going through a divorce and he was an alcoholic and he was very destructive in my life. Very, very verbally aggressive and violent, yelling and screaming, throwing apples and tomatoes at me while customers around, uh, used to threaten me all the time. Uh, and so here's a man who had power over me. And so power was very painful and destructive. So when you hear Jesus say, hey, stay in the city until the power from on high comes and clothes you, we're like, oh, cool, I'm going to get the power now. And another part of it was like, ah, if it's going to destroy like the Kool-Aid man, I don't know that I want that in my life. 
So in order to really have a context for these things, we got to know our story. And this is what the whole scriptures are about, is God's trying to tell the human story from his perspective, what he was doing, what he has been doing, what he is doing, what his hopes and dreams are for us, why he made something rather than nothing. It's what the scripture's trying to answer for us. Scripture does not answer the story, is there a God? That's a different kind of argument. It answers the story, is what kind of God, what's he been up to, what's his plan for us? And in the very beginning, we find out that the reason he made us was because he wanted us in paradise. The whole reason God wanted there to be humanity was not to be miserable, struggling, lonely, confused, meaningless, but to be fully alive. He put us in the plush, lavish beauty of a garden. Like botanical gardens ain't got nothing on the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful. And Adam and Eve experienced God and his power as the source of all the beauty. That this was a power that wanted so many good things for us. The smell of flowers, the beauty of the stars, and above all, that we were gifts. Adam knew that he was a unique, unrepeatable gift. And he wanted to give that gift because he saw Eve as a unique, unrepeatable gift. And they realized, man, this the power that created all things made even this amazing thing known as love, communion, union. In the beginning, that was the experience. The invisible power of God was the source of all that was good and beautiful, communion, love, everything. And then Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and starts talking to Eve. And he just begins to just keep adjusting Eve's heart more and more away from God. And then this is the phrase that the enemy says about God. He says, God knows that on the day you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. What Eve heard in this was that the reason God says you can't eat of that tree is he needs to hold you back because he wants to stay in charge. If God has the power and you become amazing, he's going to lose the power. And so God and you are competitors. And so Eve, in her mind by the lies of the enemy, conceived a distorted notion of who God is. Trust in her heart died, the catechism say, and then she rebelled and disobeyed God's ways. But the rebellion wasn't the first thing. It was the malformed, the distorted notion of who God is. He was now a competitor. He was conceived of, that power is against me. It's either he's going to win or I'm going to win. Either I'm going to be happy or he's going to be happy. Either I stay mediocre and he gets to be glorified because he's God, or I can actually make something of myself. I can be impressive. I can live the life the way I want, and I can find fulfillment. It became a zero-sum logic. God, not me. Me, not God. He's a competitor to our happiness. Power in the beginning was seen as a great gift. The power of God was seen as ensuring all that was good and lovely and beautiful. And now he was conceived of holding out on us. He's holding back so that he can stay in charge, Lord, in a negative sense. 
John Paul II sums this up when he says, Original sin attempts to abolish the fatherhood of God. What I was describing to you before is a power, a strength that pours out all that is good and beautiful, has revealed and bestowed upon you goodness and dignity. Another name for that lavish love is Father. And now the enemy conceives of some sort of distant being that's against us, that we have to war against. We all know this notion. We all know this lie. We've all felt it at different times. We're like, there's the life we really want, and then we feel like, but maybe God wants me to do this thing over here, so I got to do it. Because, you know, I, after all, I'm Catholic. I got to be a good boy or girl. But in there, we have no sense that what God would call us to is our flourishing. That his will is always for our greatness. Never for our mediocrity. So what happens is, is Jesus comes on the scene and Pope Benedict says, Jesus came to show us the face of God and he shows us that he's a father. Knowing you by name. Like I don't know many of your names. And oftentimes when I'm giving a talk, shameful to me, I look out and I just see people. That's not how God ever sees it. He doesn't see 8 billion people. Right? He sees a Brian. Never been one, never will be another one. You're the only one. That's how he sees you. And he, he knows the epic journey he has for you. And the, what he's intended for you to bring into this world that no one else could or has done. He sees Mary Kate. He's like, I know every hair on your head. Which, you know, when girls shower, apparently hair goes all over the shower, right? Like, he knows all of them. Because he says, that may be trivial to you, but he says, you're worth knowing every hair on your head. Because I know who you are. That's what Jesus came to reveal, that kind of father. He shows us that the power of all things, the power from on high is the power to love by name. Even enemies. That's how powerful this God is. You could even be an enemy trying to crucify him. And he still wants to love, bless, heal, and transform you. And he wants to be with you forever. He, draw near, he draws near to people in their sin and brokenness. He doesn't abandon them. He's a father. He wants to know when his children are hurting. He sees the addictions, the sins, the secret fear and shame. He knows what happened 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago. He says, I want to go there not to hurt or embarrass, but to protect, transform, and set you free. He cares. He transforms. He heals. He gives life. This is what Jesus came to do. It is every, Jesus' whole body. It was literally his body that manifested God. The crucifix in the back, right? Any crucifix. It's the idea that he's like, listen, I will take all your evil, all your violence, all your corruption, all you trying to be powerful, and I will only love you in return. I will stay open. I will stay welcoming. I will stay kind. St. Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? St. Paul began to recognize, I know who God is now. And through the Holy Spirit, I'm sharing in his power. St. Paul also said, if God gave us his son, what won't he give us? See, St. Paul knew like, oh, if he's a father and he gives his firstborn son, any Jew in the first century, no, he gave his prized possession. 
Which means if he's going to give us that, there's ain't nothing the Father doesn't want to give you to make your life beautiful. To make you like him. Glorious. See, in St. Paul's heart, fatherhood was restored and he became free. Free from all the broken notions of who's in charge, who's not, who's the cool one, who's the beautiful one, who's the influencers, all these things. Like I'm free from all that. Power from on high has come upon St. Paul. And he knows what the truth of reality is, that God is, God is love. So I experienced this in my own life. There's a great priest named Monsignor John Essef. Monsignor Essef was Mother Teresa's spirit director for a few years, actually for quite a few years, director retreats for her. As a young priest, St. Padre Pio was his spirit director, and he was my spirit director for about three and a half years. Okay? Now, I say all this so when I tell this story, you, you can give him the benefit of the doubt of realizing how holy he is. All right? So I was at a spirituality program in Creighton, uh, Creighton University in Nebraska called the Institute for Priestly Formation. And he was assigned to me as my spirit director for 10 weeks. We're about six or seven weeks in, and uh, I was much more rebellious at that time than I am now, thanks be to God, but uh, it's a slow dying process. And... Uh, we were engaged as his, my spirit director. And by the way, he was one of the chief exorcists of the United States. So he, everyone had like an, oh, Monsignor, hi, how are you? Guys would get in elevators with him like, because uh, he could read souls and things and all this stuff. So they'd like cover up. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, that's not how you read souls. Uh, so he, I told him, I was going to him and I went to him and I just said, you know, I went back to all these old ways of acting and behaving and speaking and all these old things, sins in my life. And he had just gotten done. He had done a lot of prison ministry. And he looked at me and he goes, I pray you go to jail. Maybe then you'll surrender to God. And I got angry. <laughs> and he said it really bold. His fingers were like this. And I said, I go, that's a bad prayer. And he goes, that's a good prayer. He goes, you'll be grateful when you're not spending an eternity in hell and instead a thousand years in purgatory. You'll be glad you went to jail. And I stood up, and I clenched my fist, and I was ready to fight this 87-year-old man. <laughs> and I said, you know what your problem is? Too many people tell you you're holy. You believe the hype. I go, that's a bad prayer. And I was ready. If he stood up, I would have punched him. <laughs> so, his, so let's track this with the notion of power we've been talking about. His first approach was a rather intense power at me, kind of worldly power. I'm stronger than you are. You will obey. I responded with more power than I could muster, and I went at him with my power. And so now it's a power struggle. Very typical among men, especially, but very typical in our culture. He put his head down, and my chest is tight. My hands are red. I'm like, jaws out. Oh, stand up, old man. Let's just see. And he put his head up, and he was crying. And in the sweetest voice, he just, there was like sobbing. He just said, I don't know why you won't surrender to the Father. But my hardness towards you is not God's. I pray for you. And I was slayed. I started sobbing. He prayed with me. I went back the next day and the last remaining weeks. And see, the first power was John Essef, the man. The second power was the Holy Spirit. He was able in a moment of intense egos 
to surrender his ego and be wildly vulnerable with the power of God's love. And it pierced through my locked jaw, fist clenched, tightened chest. He disarmed me and it got deep inside and elicited desires that if that's what the Father wants to do with me, to make me that kind, yes, Lord. John Paul II, when he was named Pope, he, named, he said this prayer when he was named Pope. Now, just take a minute, all right? You get named Pope, okay? It's not like you have to be a manager of a company. You're the Pope. You are now the vicar of Christ on earth. You still need to go to confession. You still know you don't make perfect choices all day long. You get sick. You get tired. He was in his 60s, I believe, at the time. And like, you know, you're not like you were in your 20s, energy-wise. Like, all that's going on. Imagine the prayer you might say. All right. This is what he says. Lord, make me become and remain the servant of your unique power, your sweet power. He goes on to say, the power of the Lord, absolute, yet at the same time, sweet and gentle, responds to the whole depths of the human person. The power of the Lord, absolute, meaning it is God. God is not in a battle with Satan. I don't know if you know that. Like you see those memes where Jesus and Satan are arm wrestling. Heresy, not true. Jesus is almighty. Satan is nothing. Jesus is almighty. All right? He's almighty. Almighty. It's not like he's kind of mighty and the devil's kind of mighty and we'll see how this goes. No, God is almighty. Monsignor Yosef taught me one time. He goes, here's a bad analogy, but it's still an analogy. God is the sun. We are little gnats, and the devil is a horsefly. The, devil, the horsefly can eat gnats all day long and destroy us. But, the, but a little horsefly, compared to the immensity of the sun, is still a less accurate example than God compared to Satan. God is infinite. Satan is finite. Right? So, God's power, absolute, yet sweet and gentle responding to the whole depths of the human person. When, the, when Jesus says, you are going to be clothed from power on high, you don't become the Kool-Aid man. We get to knock down things. You young adults, kick ass and take names. <laughs> You're not a Green Beret all of a sudden or a Navy SEAL. You're even more powerful. You're given the power to love in such a way that you will disarm human hearts. They will want to share with you their deepest shame and wounds, and they also will want to become more than they've ever wanted. I want to pursue God and holiness. I want to pray. I want to have a mission. I want to spend my life in transforming the world. They become aware because of the way you look at them and treat them and pray for them. They become aware that, I have a role in this world that no one else does. This is the power from on high. So maybe the most important question for us is, uh, how do I get more of this in my life then? That sounds great. I'd like more of that in me. How do we do that? 
First is to recognize it's given to you in baptism and confirmation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. Right, so it's already been given to you. Second thing is like the main thing that tampers the Holy Spirit is our sins. So just good old-fashioned Catholic theology. The more we repent and grow out of our sins, the more space there is in our mind, heart, identity, life for God to act. Right? It's like we have, it's like our hearts are, are, a, are a living room. There's only so much room for furniture. You're either going to have God's furniture or the or sin and the enemy's furniture. And for most of us, it's a combination of both. It's like your old crappy college futon, but then a really nice recliner you were able to afford because you got a good job now, right? So it's kind of like doesn't match yet, but it's on its way, right? So you got to find that balance there of like, okay, I need to repent of my sins, and yet there is some good stuff already growing. But here's something that really can help. When Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, he doesn't give us a precept or a principle, like do good, avoid evil. Never tell a lie. Like, Jesus isn't like an, an axiom or a, like a tweet. He's not a text message. When Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, he's giving us a person. That's a lot different. If I said the way to heaven was to clean this room, you by yourself and your own initiative and your own ideas would scrub this place down. If I said your way to heaven is to get to know, love, and walk with Mandy. That's a whole different approach. I'm sorry, I mean, you got all uncomfortable. Everyone's going to want to be with you forever. So, uh, <laughs> but it's a whole different approach. There's a person involved. First off, you have to say, if you didn't know that that was Mandy, you have to say, oh, who's, which one's Mandy? Who's Mandy? Right. The Holy Spirit. Holy is an adjective because there's other kinds of spirits. So which spirit do I need to listen to? What is he like? How does he act? How do I get to know him? Second, what is one of the best ways you get to know someone? You share yourself with them and you experience their response to you. It's one of the greatest ways. We kind of think we get to know people the best by like, tell me all about you. But most of the things you learn, you could creep about them on Facebook and figure out anyways. But there's a real moment of intimacy and communion that takes place when you share yourself with a person and they respond. And how they respond gives you a sense of what kind of person this is. Right? You've all met like uh, Monsignor Dogma, right? You share your heart and the tough things you're going to and all they do is quote catechism quotes at you. Like, you're like, you know, my grandma just died. I'm pretty sad. Like, well, do they believe in Jesus? You're like, uh, yeah. Like, well, then there's hope. You should be good. You're like, thanks, Monsignor Dogma. You just told me all the right answers. Meanwhile, my heart is bleeding because I miss her. Now you go to someone else, right? And you go to someone who knows your heart and you share the same thing and they say, oh, that has to be really hard. What was your grandma like? like oh. oh, she made the best cookies and pies and her house always smelled like butter and vanilla. <laughs> and you're like, that's amazing. What did you make, like, what pie did you like the most? And you realize, oh my gosh, I'm being drawn into relationship. And then at the right time, that person can say, well, do you want to pray for her? Yeah. And then you can offer prayers and say, I bet since she loved Jesus and she's so loving, there's a lot of hope. See, if you're going to get to know the Holy Spirit, we have to actually spend time, call upon him, talk to him. Invite, share, notice. And one of the most beautiful things to notice about the Holy Spirit is he's active in every celebration of the sacraments. And it gives us an understanding that he never comes to deform us, 
but to transform us. So for example, baptism. Right? The priest calls down the Holy Spirit to make it holy water. So it's not just like weird Lake Erie water. Right? To make it holy water. But when that happens, water doesn't get destroyed. It doesn't like, like vanish. It's not removed. Water is, becomes more than it was. It now becomes holy water. How about at Mass, right? The priest sends down the Holy Spirit with the gesture of his hands over the bread and wine, asks the Holy Spirit to come upon these gifts of bread and wine. Bread and wine by themselves are only and ever going to be bread and wine. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're not destroyed. They're not deformed. They become transformed. They become something they could never be on its own. They become more. They become what God always wanted them to be, actually. Jesus. How about when you go into the confessional, the priest says the words of absolution, right? It mentions the Holy Spirit was given to us for the forgiveness of sins. You aren't destroyed, rejected, shamed, obliterated because you sinned. You're transformed, renewed, regenerated, redeemed into a beloved son and daughter of the Father. When the Holy Spirit's active in this world, he's turning deserts into gardens, you ever wonder why when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb after the resurrection, she thought Jesus was a gardener? It's because he brings the garden of paradise back into this world. He can give us the tastes that what we were originally made for is not completely lost. It can be retrieved, redeemed, rediscovered, and lived so that in this world we get real experiences of God's original plan and of his destiny. We can really live by the hope that we will be fulfilled because we've been given the power to walk that path, the path of generous, tender love. So there's one more thing I need to mention because there are some scripture passages where Jesus doesn't seem so sweet. And if you don't deal with those in your mind, you're going to come across it and be like, I really like the sweet Jesus. I don't like this one. Maybe we can just skip this part of the story. Right? Two examples. When he makes the whip and casts people out of the temple. Right? And the second one is whenever he's like engaged with the Pharisees, and he's like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. We're like, hey, where'd, where'd gentle Jesus go? <laughs> I like that guy. Okay, so the question is, what gets Jesus's passion going? What gets him really worked up like this? When there are structures or people in place that are hindering the Father's love in this world. And so he only destroys to then cultivate. He has to get rid of the distraction and noise in the temples to then cultivate what true worship is. Because while they're there, no one can hear and encounter the Father and his love and his great plan for us because they're distracting, they're hindering, they're in the way. He wants a personal relationship with everyone in that temple. And he wants to bring them into glory and to clothe them with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they can be alive like God in this world and radiate the Father to everyone. He wants that for them, but while they're wrapped up, or a psychological word would be enmeshed, while they're stuck in this 
selling goods in the temple, they are distracted in such a deep level from what everything means. He has to break them out of that to then invite them in to the reality of God. The Pharisees, they were so they were so in a vacuum-sealed bag of their own ways of living that they had no openness to the needs of a Redeemer and Savior. They had no awareness to allow a God to be active in their lives. One of the most annoying things to me in the scriptures are when the Pharisees get all nitpicky right after a miracle. Like, a flippin' miracle just took place. The guy was paralyzed, and now he's walking. And like, yeah, but it's the Sabbath. So we should be like, can we start with the fact that this guy can walk? Do you want anyone to start there for a minute? Let's just forget everything. Else. This guy couldn't walk, and now he's walking. Or like, that guy couldn't see. He was blind. Not like, oh, he had Lasix. Now he's great. No, he couldn't see. And you're like, mm, yeah, but I don't think they should have done it that way. And you're like, oh my gosh. See, Jesus has to break them out of this. He has to wake them up. He doesn't want to condemn. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Not even the Pharisees. But because the Pharisees were not open to the need of a savior, they weren't in touch with the openness to allow a God to be other so that he's free to act in his love and providence and power as God. They had made secondary things primary. They had made the rituals and rules and laws of their faith primary rather than as means to be open to and engage God. So Jesus breaks those things down, tries to wake them up so that he can then say, now come follow me. I'll take you to glory. I really will. Not one iota of the law are we going to ignore. Not one. We're not going to ignore one iota. But it has its place. And its place is not primary. The primary place is the breaking in of the Father's love for you this day, Jesus says. Hence, the kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, at you can touch. Here I am. Jesus is like, hi, I'm here. Kingdom of God is at hand. You can touch me. So there was one person who did not come from up above in the heavens, the clouds, God, down, but just like us, was conceived, born, and always knew the truth of God. She always knew that the Holy Spirit was always going to be sweet and beautiful. The Blessed Mother. Some people say the Holy Spirit was her spouse, that she's the spouse of the Holy Spirit. But in the Annunciation, when Gabriel came to let her know the good news, if you remember, she was hesitant. Right? She just didn't understand, well, how does this all work? Right? Very practical woman. She goes, uh, I have not yet been with a man. Like, this isn't some high theological, like, well, excuse me, in Greek, the homoousios makes it a little confusing on how to understand how this is all going to go together. That's not her question. Her question is like, um, you're talking about a baby, and I haven't been with a man, so... Like, very practical, normal woman, girl, really, 14 to 16. And what's beautiful is, in her hesitation, the way the angel woos her to give her vulnerable, surrendered yes, is he says, the power from on high, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. 
Now she knew the overshadowing did not mean a diminishment. She knew it was a protection, like a tree in the summer heat giving shade. The power from the, old, the Most High will take care of all of you, your whole being. And she knew that that power wasn't going to be corrupting her, destroying her, deforming her. It was the greatest ally in her life. If God is for us, who could be against us? And so she had no problem saying, let it be done unto me. I give you my whole life because power from the Most High, you will take care of everything. You will shelter me. You will provide for me. You will guide me. You will transform me. And so, as John Paul said, that power is absolute and at the same time sweet and gentle. And it responds to the whole depth of the human person. So it is very good that we end praying with the Blessed Mother, asking her to heal our own understandings of God, our distorted notions of him, asking us to take that long healing journey because for some of us, we had immense traumas and God felt absent. And so there's part of our heart and our story where we say, well, where were you when that happened? Mr. All-Loving Dad. And that's a very important prayer. We need to go there and have some very vulnerable, sincere discussions. Where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Why did this happen to me? Because in having those conversations, remember, in sharing our heart and feeling their response, we begin to rebuild trust and these relationships can heal. And in doing that, we become more and more in union with God. And then we really do radiate, just like Jesus, the Father to everyone we meet, which is what every heart's looking for. And so let us end with a prayer to the Blessed Mother. Before we do, I'm just going to invite you to pause and just kind of notice your own heart. Is your heart resting in peace? If so, just soak that in. If your heart is desirous, oh, I want this. I want that power. I want that relationship. You feel this ache or longing? Share that with the Lord. Jesus, I'm letting you know about this desire I have. If you're kind of nervous or agitated, you don't really know why, beautiful. Tell Jesus, Jesus, I'm a little restless and kind of annoyed. I don't know what's going on with me. And if you're just numb and for the last 30 minutes you just zoned out, just tell Jesus, hey, I don't know where I was, but I'm back with you right now. Blessed Mother, you gave your full yes to the Father's servant, St. Gabriel. You heard of his plan, and like us, you paused before the immensity of the calling. How would this be? Could we matter this much? Could I be that important? How would this all work out? And you heard, Mary, that the power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, would overshadow you. And it helped you to ease into giving that full yes with joy. Mary, help us to want hunger and engage the Holy Spirit. 
Help us to swim in the Holy Spirit, to soak in him like a hot tub till we get all pruney. Help us to call upon the Holy Spirit throughout our day and to always keep our heart open to the sweet, gentle, and yet absolute power of God at work in us and in the church. Mary, step on the serpent's head who discourages, accuses, leads us to judge and condemn others, leads us to be in fear and shame, tells us we are defined by our past and we can't ever become more. Step on the accuser's head and instead fill us with the advocate, the one who affirms and cheers us on, encourages and blesses us. Mary, as the perfect, sweet, wonderful woman and mother, I ask that you would descend upon and hold everyone in this room. Hold these men as your beloved son. Affirm their masculinity. Help them to know they don't have to grasp or strive, but just be who they were created to be. Awaken in them the nobility of masculinity. Mary, come to these women. Protect them from the onslaught of all the lies that come their way of what it means to be a woman, what it beauty looks like and means. Hold them, heal them, and draw all of us inside that mantle, that mantle that's covered in stars in your appearance at Guadalupe. So as the stars wrap around us, we may know we are a part of the heavens and a part of God's plan for this world. And so together, we pray to you, Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you all so much. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.